0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight once anew for our life, liberty, property, for ourselves and those who come after us, just like our forefathers did. It is Monday, the 28th of March. That was the day that Parliament passed the Intolerable Acts and the people reacted in a united, intrepid manner, and they fought a revolution. What does that say of us? That we've had years worth of revolutionary acts, intolerable acts, committed by our government, and we've done nothing about it. Well, part of the reason, folks, is because we're distracted. I mean, all my colleagues are here fighting over Kid Rock and, and Will Smith and the Oscars and everything, and then as I'm recording now, It turns out that whole thing might have been a fraud, a setup anyway, to juice up their ratings. And I was thinking, it's emblematic of what I've experienced my entire career and why we can never start a normal movement. We're always fighting other people's causes. The Houthis versus Al-Qaeda, Ukraine and Russia. Falling on our sword, this guy, you know, terrible people doing terrible things to each other. Oh, he's right, he's right. What about our own prerogatives? When are we going to fight for our own prerogatives and not get distracted by any coolness of the day? So while others will spend time on that, I want to start off today with the courts. We didn't talk about the Kenton-Jing Jackson nomination because I felt it was worthless anyway. But I want to touch on it a little bit in the prism of a court ruling on Friday. Once again, speaking of fighting on someone else's hill to die on, falling on someone else's sword, we fought like dogs over Kavanaugh, over getting these idiots on the court who now screw us just as badly as the Democrat appointees. And this is my point. I don't care how small the movement is. I want an intrepid, pure movement that we could forge that will always stand for our causes and we don't at least... We might have few guns going into battle, but we can grow that movement. At least the gun won't fire out the backside. And that's what we had with this Friday ruling against the Navy SEALs in Texas, ruling that the government indeed could coerce their bodies into the poison. So we'll get to that. Now, speaking of not falling on other people's swords, folks, stop giving T-Mobile and Verizon your money. Uh, You know... What's worse than getting kicked off of social media, imagine if every text you put out and they don't like it, they censor it. Well, this is happening with T-Mobile. It will happen with others. That's why I'm proud to partner with Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative cell phone provider. And you should as well. They offer broad nationwide coverage. In fact, they use the same towers as the major carriers so you could get the same nationwide coverage plus the peace of mind that you are funding free speech, not censorship. Uh, they have plans that fit your budget, and their 100% U.S.-based customer support team provides exceptional customer service. Uh, what's more is that those um, who are veterans and first responders, they get a special discount. So go to patriotmobile.com CR or call 972-PATRIOT, and you can get free activation with offer code CR, Support a company that loves America, loves you, and shares your values. Let's fight for our causes. PatriotMobile.com slash CR. That's patriotmobile.com slash CR or 972 Patriot. So, again, we had this ruling on Friday, right after we had Dr. Sigloff, you know, a military doctor who is being suspended for issuing exemptions. We have this ruling come out once again, six to three liberal majority saying that, no, the Navy can mandate vaccines, throw away religious exemptions in the garbage. There is no religious liberty. There is no bodily autonomy. There is no freedom of expression. Um, First Amendment free exercise clause, uh, re- the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, all out the window in the military. So... And, and I've noted often what the, the problem that these Republican judges usually cause is that you have liberal lower courts that issue bad opinions, and then they won't grant our appeal. So they'll let it stand more passively. Here, it's active. We had a very comprehensive ruling um, from Judge Reed O'Connor in Texas, and then the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals also upheld the injunction. And again, the injunction wasn't – broadly controlling vaccination uh, policies in the military. It just said these Navy SEALs, there were like 25 of them, um, you cannot take adverse effect against them as long as their religious exemption is pending throughout the trial, right? Because this was the ultimate individualized grievance to their bodies, to their religious expression. It's irrevocable, right? I mean, it's the ultimate thing that's irrevocable, so that is emphatically the job of a court. You know, those individuals, it wasn't broad national policy, and yet Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Roberts joined the Democrat appointees, and they put a stay on that lower court injunction. And what that basically means is that even though they'll say, well, it's just, you know, we don't want an injunction, but it doesn't mean you can't win on the merits. If you read what Kavanaugh wrote in his concurrence, um, and you understand the process, that it's going to take several years to get through this, Th- these guys are toast. They're going to be terminated. In fact, uh, out of 4,000 religious exemptions filed, not a single one was granted. And they had the same process for each one. They wouldn't even look at them, the same rote letter. They wouldn't consider them. So it was a clearly a policy categorically overlooking religious ob- objections to the shots. Now, what's fascinating about this and what demonstrates why the courts are a one-way street and a dead end for us, which I've been yelping about for for a decade, as you guys who listened to me before COVID well know, and I wrote a book, Stolen Sovereignty, on this point. I made a very simple point. I said, look, we would be smart to go ahead and agree with the left to – Basically allow them to nominate anyone they want. Okay, I don't care who they are. You can nominate anyone you want, even when Republicans have control of the White House and the Senate, on one condition. I called it the grand bargain. That judicial supremacism is over with. So you could rule on cases, but if they affect broad policies that intersect with the actions of other branches of government, whether it's a state or federal branch, you know they could do what they feel is correct. And we'll have a fight over it. We'll go around in circles. That's what I warned about. But people are like, no, 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 no. We have control. We're going to get all these nominees with Trump here in power. And we're going to permanently alter the court. And of course, I was proven right. We fought the wrong battle. Rather than fighting against judicial supremacism as a whole, we fought for quote unquote better judges and then we didn't even get better judges after swearing for years that we built a whole movement to get more Clarence Thomases we couldn't even get more Alitos we got three that are less than Alito Gorsuch is somewhat less than him and the other two are just other utter disasters a hundred percent on par with um what's her, what's his name uh Roberts and I look back uh you know I, I did a podcast I look back to my archives This was, oh, what is this, like a year and a half ago during the Amy Barrett confirmation hearings, and COVID was in full swing. And I was saying at the time, I was like, wait a minute, not a single question is being asked of her about COVID fascism. This is the single biggest judicial question. Imagine having a Supreme Court confirmation hearing during a time of the most protracted, profound suspension of civil liberties bodily autonomy in America and the judges did nothing and they're still doing nothing for the most part and there was no question of her even though she already had a bad opinion in the 7th Circuit or signed on to it basically saying Jacobson is king and, and no one had a problem with that Amy Barrett all the way well this is what we get stuck with and to bring out this point of the courts being a one-way street and a dead end, I want to I wanna note the point that Kavanaugh made when he denied or accepted the appeal of the government and overturned the injunction. He said under Article 2 of the Constitution, the President of the United States, not any federal judge, is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. So he tapped into this broad sentiment that that we have broadly been espousing for many years of somewhat of judicial minimalism that, hey, you know, when you're talking about broad political disagreements, it's got to be decided by the political branches and not by the federal courts. And that has been a position I have held for a long time. But the problem that you see with people like Barrett and Kavanaugh is they only espouse that view in the most illegitimate way at the worst time and in the most obvious times when political branches make very logical decisions in the interest of the state or the feds or whatever that's in, within long-standing case law, social norms, political norms, legal norms. They overturn it. They get involved. So I'm okay in a world where we're going to be like, look, anything the political branches want to do, if they you know, fight it, fight it, look, at the end of the day, they could do what they want. I could live in a world like that. Because then we could go into our states and we could do what we want without the federal courts tampering. But except the federal courts do tamper with it, and Kavanaugh and Barrett are right there to screw with us and get involved. So that's the interesting thing going on there. Suddenly, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and Kavanaugh discovers a case where he's like, "Yeah, you know, that's not something the court should get involved with. I don't like that the lower court judge, um, you know, starts telling them, you know, what what uh, religious exemptions you have to take and vaccine mandates. I, I, I don't know. We're not the commander in chief. Yes, as if there's never a time that the military has been taken to court." no, 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 such as demanding transgenderism, recognition of gay marriage. Oh, no, that never, never happened. Oh, and Kavanaugh certainly would overturn those cases. Yeah, right. It's a one-way street and a dead end. It's a fact that Barrett and Kavanaugh, they will join with whatever is the spirit of the age. Now, folks, speaking of fundamental rights, there is one organization I trust that defends your rights, Patriot Academy. Now, this is really, really exciting news. Patriot Academy now has up, if you go to Patriot Academy, just type in Constitutional Defense defense Training, Constitutional Defense Training, Patriot Academy, Google it, because uh, I don't have the exact URL yet. And you could sign up for the May 22nd, five-day Constitutional Defensive Handgun Training. If you want to meet you, yours truly in Raton, uh New Mexico at the Whittington NRA facility right outside of Raton it's in northeast uh New Mexico there aren't too many good airports there so you got to fly into either Colorado Springs or Santa Fe but a lot of you guys live in the area especially those of you in Texas it's probably worth driving so you don't have to wear a diaper on your face um it is the most amazing experience being together with other members of this show other patriots um Great camaraderie, great instructors. We learn clearing malfunctions, shooting from the holster, uh, trigger control, sight alignment, grip control, how to win a gunfight. So many people are into handguns and they don't really know how to use them. A lot of people even don't feel comfortable carrying. I hear a lot of you guys like, oh, I don't I don't carry um, with one in the pipe. No, you will get that confidence of how to, Hold the handgun, manipulate it, and again shoot accurately from the holster. Time shots. Uh, so it's it's you know a mixture of constitution training at night. Uh, I usually speak a couple times. Rick Green uh, runs the program, and during the day, we basically spend all day out on their ranges, and it is a lot of fun. So this is a venue change to Raton, New Mexico. Again, go to PatriotAcademy.com put in defensive handgun training or constitutional defensive training, and you'll see I will be there, and I hope to see you guys there as well. So, folks, we're talking about how even a broken clock is right twice, but never these justices. So, again, when I always said that courts don't have the final say, what did I mean? I meant when you have broad political questions you can't have the courts decide them. And even if you find some individual plaintiff to get a ripe case, it's not universally binding and self-executing that that's the law of the land. The law of the land is the laws that you pass. You know. So my point was, like, let's say we have um, photo ID requirements. So they'll get a straw man plaintiff to go into court and say it's unconstitutional. And my point is, well, okay – who didn't get a photo ID? Because all these laws say that the rare freak that doesn't have one, however that person functions for 50 million other things, private and public, you need to show ID for, they will provide it for you, right? And all those laws, they say the state will, will mail you one. So who wasn't able to get one that they can't vote? That's not a valid case. There you're just in the abstract putting a political issue in court that you don't like, and you want to say that judicial supremacism, that the courts have the final say in it. And that's what I've always opposed. But I always have agreed that it's not that the courts have no avenue in intersecting with a civil society. Of course, it does. And if you have an individualized grievance that government is coming after your body, you have the right to request relief and say, I shouldn't get punished um, for... For expressing my religious views, or being forced to, you know, express another religious view, which I would argue at this point the shots are being negative three hundred fifty percent effective, according to the latest UK uh, Health Security Surveillance Report. I would tell you that it is a religion, and people don't want it, and it's not just constitutional. We have Rifra, right, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which does protect you know anyone's assertion of you know religious objections and and yes it's under, even in the military even as a federal worker it's like well d- don't be in the military if you don't like it they they do have more control there's no question but i mean they can't crush your body and then you know destroy your career right remember i mean we have all these cases that you don't f- perform sex change operations in the military I mean, they demand affirmative benefits. So certainly, again, we always talk about what is a fundamental right. It's a negative. I'm not asking for Medicaid. I'm not asking for access to something. I'm asking for relief from the government taking action against my life, liberty, property. So if there's ever a time to turn to a court, I'm not saying as the sole and final arbiter, but as one avenue, it's certainly the people have the right, and people in the military have the right to turn to that. And suddenly, Kavanaugh's like, no, no, oh, it's they, they could do whatever they want. They could do whatever they want. Bull. Bull. McLaughlin v. Panetta, 2011. The military must recognize same-sex marriages in terms of, you know, there's different financial benefits for spouses. Even though we had a statute, DOMA, if you remember, Defense of Marriage Act. It was passed nearly un- unanimously in Congress, signed by President Clinton. Unanimous statute. Affecting something that basic, you would say certainly the military has the right to determine what a marriage is, right? And they're following statute. Nope. The courts had no problem being commander in chief. So, again, if you want to go back to the political branches could do what they want, or, you know, the courts don't necessarily have the final say in that, I'd love to shake hands on that. But if we're going to have these decisions, and believe me, Kavanaugh would never have the testicular fortitude to overturn a case like that, could tell you that much. Don't give me this business of and oh, and and he's obsessed with stereo decisis. Kavanaugh's always like, this is well. You know, he'll he'll write these weird, random, oblique concurrences to say, like, okay, this is well in line with our case law. Well, our case law shows that the military can't do whatever it wants. You could tell me the president's the commander-in-chief all he wants, but if you would implicate religious rights or You know, there are nowadays religious rights of the, you know, rainbow jihad. You better believe they're going to apply Rifra. They're going to apply the First Amendment. Even in the military, they will apply it. So don't give me this business that somehow you can't do whatever, you know, know, the, the, the president could just do whatever he wants. That's my point. My point is we've fought for judicial supremacism. We've agreed to it. And then we just said, let's get our guys in the court. And then they turn around and screw us. Oh, well, Daniel, they're, they're minimalist. They don't like to get involved. Really? They don't like to get involved in decisions governments make that should be left to policy, even when it implicates religious freedom. That would be very interesting. You see, I didn't get a chance to mention this. But a day before that, literally 24 hours before, on Thursday... Cavanaugh and, Fra- and and Alito too Alito wrote the dissent in this uh, Navy Seal case but all of them except of course for Justice Thomas they applied religious liberty in the context of where it shouldn't be applied okay so it was Ramirez v. Collier Texas case where they were you know putting off the execution forever you know how they find fifty million ways to delay it. And one of the games they play now is so the guy was saying the Texas in the execution chamber, they don't allow the guy's pastor, this guy Jim Ramirez, his pastor in to put his hands on his head and utter certain verses or whatever while they're uh, you know, administering the lethal injection. So because you don't allow that. We get a stay of execution. Indeed, they issued a stay a couple months ago, and then they had a ruling on it on Thursday. And everyone said it violates RELUPA, what Texas was doing, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, We're basically in prison, anyone could assert, so prisoners have more religious liberty rights than, than, than soldiers. right? You could say the most outlandish things that everyone knows it has nothing to do with your religion, but you could demand my religion requires this food and this article and this access to this. Again, we're talking about positive. Remember, fundamental rights are more negative, negative. But they're not recognizing the negative rights on my own body in the military. I have to wear something or, or do something in my body that violates my religion in my body but and it's irre- irreversible but i have access to whatever i want and you might say well this is negative because you're killing the guy or executing the guy but that's a separate issue he was convicted and we have capital punishment he was convicted murderer so you don't have an affirmative right to have a particular type of you know religious service at that time in that way in that moment when they feel it interferes with what they're doing Okay, that makes sense that a state would do that, but no, everyone except for Thomas said it's such a right. And as Thomas noted in the dissent, there, everyone knows it had nothing to do with a religious thing. It was just another dilatory tactic to push off the execution because the guy took years to assert it. Here, the, the the seals right away they asserted it, and Kavanaugh was like, "Screw that," but here he had no problem getting involved. Right away, that jumped out to me, and then I saw Alito actually did make reference to this at the end of his dissent in the Navy SEAL case. Okay, this is um, Austin v. U.S. Navy SEALs 1 to 26, if you want to look up the case on Skoda's blog or whatever. So, he waited years, but you know they were like, that's a sincere religious belief, you know, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his, in his opinion there. And by the way, here, too— um, You know, there were three dissents, Alito, uh, Gorsuch, and Thomas. But even in the Navy SEAL cases, only Thomas that would have fully rejected the government's request for stay. Alito and Gorsuch would have done a little bit more narrow. um, Would have, you know, kept it in a way that would have protected the Navy SEALs, but still, um, you know, took away some of the injunction. So, again, it's a reflection of the Republican Party. One out of nine is real. So that's your Ron DeSantis. That's your, you know, on a political level. You have once in a while a good Republican. You have a handful of others that sometimes are with us. And then the overwhelming majority are literally no different than Democrats. And they're worse. They're more subversive. So this is where we are with the courts. Now, I do want to actually – I, I want to just mention a couple other cases here just to drive home this point. Uh, but first, our final sponsor today z-stack life folks there are more pathogens they will unleash them on you and they will block the treatment you need to stock up on z-stack now that's dr vladimir zelenko's uh formulation of zinc quercetin vitamin c vitamin d gmp certified produced right here in the usa now more than ever you have to take control of your health and your family's health. Go to zstacklife.com/daniel. Enter promo code Daniel to get a discount on your first order. That's zstacklife.com/daniel. Do not allow yourself to be caught flat-footed. And by the way, we still have it. Seven Cells Pharmacy, cells.com You can put in promo code Daniel for ivermectin hydroxy. Um, there's different treatment packs there. I have no idea what the future is going to bring um who knows who knows what they're doing who knows if any of us have an immunity with this thing spreading but i I did want to get to some of that stuff with the vaccine but first just to finish with the court so kavanaugh is saying that oh no 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 we don't like the courts interfering with what you know others do no 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 so again i could live with that if i said look COVID fascism, once the political branches successfully implement COVID fascism, they could literally inject poison in our bodies. There's nothing we can do, and we can't turn to a court for help. I could accept that if I could go to a state where we could get freedom and the courts won't interfere. But we just had a federal judge in Virginia say that Governor Youngkin is not allowed to not have a mask mandate, okay. So, in other words, he he said schools aren't allowed to mandate it. Twelve, they they got you know twelve straw men plaintiffs to to sue, and they said we're immunocompromised children, and you're affecting us. So you don't have the right to your own body, but other people have a right to shut down your body, to force you to cover your mouth and nose because it works so much that they have the choice of wearing it, but it doesn't work unless you also wear it. Okay. We also, if you remember, had the federal judge in Tennessee, Knoxville County, to this day, saying they all have to wear a mask. They actually, it's not just that they were denying our petitions to get rid of the mask mandates, they were saying you must wear a mask. Courts were mandating that. Ultimately, getting involved in state police powers, and you don't see this alacritous, effort from Kavanaugh and Barrett to ever reverse this stuff it's a one way street I love it how suddenly they're minimalists and there's a whole bunch of examples of this hypocrisy of individual freedom and religious liberty and state powers governmental powers versus individual rights and prerogatives of, of courts to get involved if you look at Kavanaugh's record In May 2020, I'm sure you remember this, Kavanaugh had no problem joining the liberals, allowing a Ninth Circuit ruling declaring it cruel and unusual punishment. Literally, Eighth Amendment violation to not provide a sex offender in prison with access to castration and transgender hormone therapy to remain in effect and then be placed in a female prison. This is an Idaho case. So you would think, well, you know, Kavanaugh would say, we're not in charge of the Idaho Bureau of Prisons. They have the right to make this determination. No, no. A guy has an affirmative right to make the Idaho Bureau of Prisons pay to cut his balls off. That's a fundamental right. Ninth Circuit ruled that. And we all thought, okay, it's the Ninth Circuit, whatever. Go to the Supreme Court. It will be over with. Nope. They denied Idaho's appeal, and they let it stand. Um... Barrett wasn't on the court yet, but Kavanaugh was and joined with the left. I know Thomas and Alito would have granted cert. I'm not. I'm forgetting if, if Gorsuch too, but it wasn't more than those three. And then a month later, in June 2020, a case came before the Supreme Court for an appeal on cert. If you remember the famous radical Fourth Circuit opinion demanding. That boys be allowed in girls' bathrooms. This was a Virginia case, I think the Grim, the Gloucester County, um, that was going on for a while. So again, there's nothing more within the interest, within the power of a local government, local school district to say a man's gonna be in a man's bathroom, a girl's gonna be in a girl's bathroom. No, you can't do that. I have the right to the access to the other person's bathroom. I don't have a right to my own body, but I have a right to access the other person's bathroom. That's how screwed up these courts are. So you would think Kavanaugh would get off his high horse and and jump in and rebuke the Fourth Circuit, just like he rebuked Judge Reed O'Connor in Texas for getting involved in something that should be a political decision made by government, not by the courts. Nope. Only Thomas and Alito would have overturned the 4th Circuit. In Kavanaugh's worldview, the government is so powerful that it has the right to force you to get an experimental injection that doesn't work against transmission. It's actually negative to the government's asserted interest. It actually proliferates spread. This has been proven from over a year's worth of UK data and many, many other places. But at the same time, It does not, a government does not have a legitimate vital interest in keeping boys at a girl's bathroom. Put another way, a person has a legitimate right to access the opposite sex's bathroom, but that same person doesn't have the right to be secure in his body against government coercion. Folks, if this is a conservative court, I'd hate to see what a liberal one looks like. Then we had last year, at the end of the term, it was early July the the term actually went over time, went over time like a week. July 2021, Barrett and Kavanaugh joined with the other leftists and denied an appeal from L. Stutzman. That's the owner of Arlene's Flowers to assert. So so you might think, okay, okay, Daniel, the military, okay, that, that's different. When you work in the military, you don't really have rights, okay. This is a private business owner asserting religious liberty, private property, free speech, to decline to service a same-sex ceremony with floral arrangements okay but nope you you, you have to you, you don't have religious rights again they didn't rule on it but they didn't reverse the lower courts they allowed it to stand and that is a statement around the same time last year the same six ju- justices denied emergency injunctive relief to New York health workers who are being deprived of religious liberty exemptions carte blanche and the you know, New York mandate. So again and again, we see that they don't mind interjecting when, or, and certainly allowing the lower courts to interject with the most fundamental rights of private citizens being coerced by government, not in the military, not even in the context of vaccines and, you know, all that nonsense. There is no religious liberty. Except if you want affirmative, like, I want you know, the, the Bureau of Prisons to pay for $5 million a year worth of uh, Muslim food or something, then that's a right. That's a fundamental right. Fundamental right. Folks, how tragic it is. I'm going to read to you a column I wrote, just to close the circuit on this. I wrote this column... February 2nd, 2017. So that's right at the beginning of the Trump administration when we knew we we had our first vacancy opened. Well, because it was held over from Scalia's death. They nominated Gorsuch. And we knew there would be others. And I wrote a very controversial column. Everyone was so into, oh, let's get, get our nominees, get the Federalist Society coming. And I said, I wrote a column titled, this grand bargain would get politics out of the courts. And I called for a grand bargain. I said, you want to take politics out of the judicial confirmation process? Take politics out of the federal courts. Um, It's that time of the decade again. Another massive partisan fight over a Supreme Court nominee is about to ensue. While everyone debates the minutiae of the nominee's record, few will bother reflecting on the fact that the Supreme Court nomination fights have only become acrimonious because the role of the federal judiciary has been expanded to that of a king. One could get a glimpse of the original design of the court by reading a letter John Jay wrote to President Adams rejecting the president's request to name him Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Jay, who had been a member of the very first Supreme Court, lamented How boring and inconsequential the court was to molding the direction of the country. He complained about the judiciary not being on equal footing with other branches of government. And being the political statesman type, Jay had no interest in languishing in a stuffy room adjudicating criminal cases or bankruptcy law with the waning health of his elder years. Contrast that to the spectacle of this announcement of Neil Gorsuch for associate justice and both sides are waiting with bated breath as if the future of our entire society hangs in the balance. It wasn't always this way, and it doesn't have to be this way. And I noted, the federal judiciary was conceived as the weakest branch of the federal government. The legislature, the elected branch with the most transparency through public votes, was given the predominant power to legislate and fund the functions of the federal government born out of few defined enumerated powers. The executive branch was to faithfully execute those laws and was given the power to sign or veto new legislation. The judiciary, which was to be comparatively the weakest branch and wield neither force nor will over the direction of the country, was to interpret the application of those laws in individual cases and controversies. Everything else belongs to the states. Even when John Marshall popularized the concept of judicial review in Marbury, that justices can look at the constitutionality of the law in addition to interpreting it and are obligated to block its implementation when it violates the Constitution, he never envisioned the judiciary as the sole and final arbiter. He meant that even the weak judiciary, which is unelected, has no funding or enforcement mechanism, and has no ability to make a decision without first receiving a case or controversy with legitimate standing, it still could sometimes get involved. Similarly, it also had the obligation to follow its oath of office to the Supreme Law of the Land and the Constitution. But certainly members of the other branches of the federal and state governments which swear the same oath and wield much more power must adhere to the Constitution. And it was quite clear that if the courts ever delivered a revolutionary opinion in a specific case, the other branches would not implement it as precedent. For example, if a court redefined marriage and sexuality and threatened to throw someone in jail for not servicing it, the other branches would have refused to execute the bench warrant or defund, right, That's the executive branch, or defund such enforcement. That would be the legislature. There would be a controversy, and ultimately the issue would go back and forth with popular opinion and and elections. There is no finality of judgment, res judicata, with constitutional questions and political social issues the way there is with judgments in individual civil and criminal cases. That's my opinion, but I think I'm right on that. Moreover, even the concurrent jurisdiction, not exclusive, but concurrent jurisdiction over constitutional interpretation was only meant to be exercised in quote-unquote some individual controversies, not to be signaled as precedents for broad social and political issues. Remember, Marbury, the source of judicial review, was the most inconsequential, isolated, inside-baseball type of case imaginable that had no bearings on the future social fabric or ability of one party to win elections over the other. Finally, judicial review was only accepted as a means of adhering to the Constitution, not redefining it the law had to manifestly violate the plain meaning of the Constitution as adopted. Anything less would not warrant judicial intervention. As the great James Wilson, one of the crafters of Article 3, and one of the Supreme Court justices said, laws, must be unjust, may, be, laws may be unjust, may be unwise, may be dangerous, may be destructive, and yet not be so unconstitutional as to justify the judges in refusing to give them effect. End quote. So that's from James Wilson. And, and again, I would note that That's what you would say is like, everyone's like, well, a court could have judicial review. Well, that's like when a government is saying you have to inject hemlock or you lose your life, liberty or property or career over it. But not if you say that, oh, a boy has a girl uh, has a right to a girl's bathroom. Even if you believe in that type of stuff, nobody with a straight face could say it's in the Constitution. But again, people like Kavanaugh have it ass backwards. So it's a long piece, and I go through the history. I say, this all changed during the Warren era, 1950s. Um, I talk about Cooper V. and courts got involved in everything. So I said, if Democrats really wanted to take politics out of the courts and finally bring peace to Washington on judicial fights, they'd shake hands on a deal to get rid of judicial review. As I've said before, there's nothing wrong with a modicum of judicial review to serve as one of the many checks on tyranny. I have no problem with a judge that blocks implementation of a law that manifestly violates the Constitution. But in that case, we should vitiate the law as a civil society, not because the court said so, but rather because the Constitution said so. On the other hand, now that judicial review has morphed into judicial supremacy in conjunction with the irremediably broken conception of the Constitution itself among the legal profession and those bringing most of the lawsuits, there is no way judicial review will ever work for our republic without turning into a judicial oligarchy, especially because federal judges serve life tenure. Congress, the Justice Department, and each state needs to have its own Office of Constitutional Interpretation. After all, the all swear to uphold the Constitution. This would mean that federal courts would not have the authority to adjudicate cases to overturn laws the left doesn't like, such as marriage, religious liberty, abortion regulations, immigration law, and voter integrity laws. Likewise, federal courts would not have the authority to strike down overzealous labor, environmental, and campaign finance regulations. Those cases would be rerouted to state courts, which are generally elected. It would foster federalism, make state judicial elections great again, and tailor society more toward the character of each locality. On net, conservatives would be dumb not to take this deal. For every victory we win in court today, we lose 10 others of greater magnitude. Plus, most of our victories are very narrow and fleeting. I note Heller on guns and Shelby County on election law, while theirs are broad and eternal. Such a bargain would remove all the politics from the nomination process, would restore the trust and prestige to the core purview of the court, applying the statutes as written. It is the painstaking job of fair statutory application for which our founders wanted an independent and unelected judiciary, leave the politics to the elected branches." I noted that would have been the better deal. When we had the leverage, when Republicans controlled, and the Democrats knew on paper Republicans were going to get a super majority of Republican appointees on that court, now would be the time, you know what? We'll allow you guys to pick the nominee, but we're going to end judicial review. And again, I believe if you understand what judicial review is and isn't, I don't believe in ending it because it's just a matter of it's not supremacism. It's not Self-executing, universally binding on the other branches, and on the you know self-executing on every person. But if we're going to view it that way, then let's formally abolish it. That was my grand bargain. And people are like, no, no, we we're going to get a, our, our nominees on, and we're going to need it. We're going to use it in our time of need when the left has control of the political branches and they do tyrannical things. They'll be there for us. Well, we experienced the worst form of tyranny a tyranny that I could have never envisioned when I wrote that in February 2017. And the courts have never been there for us. But meanwhile, they continue to screw with us um, on everything that we want to implement, including forcing the spirit of the age, the tyranny on us by judicial fiat. So if you're in a state where you didn't have the political branches do it to you, the federal courts are going to do it to you. The single biggest obstacle to my ultimate plan of national divorce, sanctuary states for con- constitutional sanctuaries, well, guess what's going to happen? You know, you, you start deporting illegal aliens. Well, the same courts that don't recognize human rights but then recognize a right for someone to invade your country, guess what? They'll parachute right in there. And our side, you know, we're too scared and we think that, you know, we didn't use the leverage when we had it. We could have said to the Democrats, look, we're going to get three picks on the court. We're going to have the ability to not just overturn the swing seats, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat is going to fall into our hands. We could crush you. But you know what? Instead, we're going to shake on it. And we're going to make this grand bargain. I called for that four years ago. Five years ago, I mean. And here we are today, and we're suffering the worst of both ends of the judiciary. So, folks, that is why, to me, the courts are irremediably broken. I don't even care about Jackson. If anything, Jackson is actually better because, you know, everyone respected Breyer as he was, like, some somehow some, like, decent guy. So he actually did hold sway over the Barretts and the Kavanaugh's. Hopefully, Jackson is so radical that she won't be able to build consensus like Breyer did, but who knows? But, you know, a lot of people are just outraged that, This woman doesn't, she literally doesn't believe in prison. She doesn't believe in prison for anything. Anything. I mean, except for people like you and me. Um, She's extreme radical, racist, you know, total BLM. But you know what? I got news for you. You have people like that up and down the federal bench. 100% of Democrat appointees are like that. And at least 50% of the Republican appointees are like that. And 90% of the other 50%, They won't do what it takes to combat it. They might not initiate those opinions, but they're not going to overturn them, and they're not going to come into conflict with them. That's why I wrote my book. If you haven't read it, it's still available on Amazon. Stolen Sovereignty. How to Stop Unelected Judges from Transforming America. I wrote that in 2015. You know, 2015, 2016, in anticipation of Republicans winning a trifecta at a federal level, we knew that would happen. And I said, look, you know, everything you want to accomplish, it's meaningless because we basically gave the courts an unending veto. And it turned out to be true. Turned out to be true. Now, just real briefly, we we spent most of the time in the courts, I just do want to get to some of the new... um Vaccine stuff, so Cornell University is warning about the b a two variant, right? Cases are going up on their college campus. Do you know they have they have a mandate there, so by definition, everyone has to be vaccinated ninety two percent on the Cornell campus have three shots literal I mean this is what's happening, and the courts will look you in the eye and say that that that's the least restrictive means of of achieving a vital interest of stopping the spread. And and harming others, like what? What are you talking about? It's absolutely insane. Then you have, um, you know, I just want to give you guys the tally of events. Here you have theirs for vaccine adverse event reporting. In the UK, you have, um. Yellow Card, it's called Yellow Card. It's put out by the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. They have 1.47 million events based on 449,000 reports. Folks, remember the UK is like, what, one-fifth the size of America? If you look that up, you know what that means. In the Yellow Card system, one in every 117 people vaccinated have experienced a yellow card adverse event that's 0.85 percent that's almost a full percentage point point. and previous studies have estimated yellow card reporting is underreported by a factor of 10 it's only 10 percent of the reporting so that would likely put the degree of adverse events between eight nine percent which which to me is is very plausible that that makes a lot of sense. eight to nine percent were injured in some way, many of them very very severely, but folks that's eight to nine percent of almost every adult and half the kids that's what's so insane. so many people are poisoned for life in the u s were over two million injuries over twenty six thousand reported deaths in Vs um myocarditis reports oh yeah i wanted to get to this myocarditis as of march 18th of this year march 18th okay so not even a full quarter of the year we were already at 55% 55% of the insane myocarditis numbers and there's from 2021 Okay? If you would continue on this pace for the re- remainder of the year, that would be 63,370 myocarditis reports in one year. An ailment that most doctors will tell you they never saw before. 63,000 in a year. And again, this is theirs reporting. It's definitely underreported. The question is by how much. Again, we have the quote from CDC researchers published in JAMA that theirs myocarditis is likely significantly underreported. So it's likely in the several hundred thousands. But what's scary is this how many? I don't have the data in front of me, but I think you'll trust me, it's obvious. How many people, especially in the you know, young male age cohort that's uh, prone to get myocarditis from this, how many shots were given January, February, March of this year versus last year? Right, it's really slowed down, obviously. Most who got it, got it. And yet the reports are rolling in. What that tells me is what we've been warning about is that all those cases of people getting myocarditis within the first few days or week or two of the shots, it's not just then. It's a latent inflammation. That was the first tranche of people. But then you have all these people that seemed fine. And as much as six to 12 months later, they could drop dead. And it's crazy. If you watch the news on the cyclists, Dr. Lynn Finn has a list of cyclists because she's, she's into that. She's into doing kind of, you know, you know, professional cycling. And uh, oh my gosh, there's like in one week, there were like seven of these people in their 20s dead of a sudden heart attack. The Journal of Pediatrics, 16 patients, 12 to 17 at Seattle's Children's Hospital, with suspected mRNA, vaccine-induced myocarditis. Um, out of the 16, 69% of them still had LGE three to eight months later. So that's late gadolinium enhancement. It's an indicator of cardiac injury and fibrosis. It's strongly associated with the worst prognosis in patients with the acute myocarditis. So when they say, "Ah, okay, it's not a big deal. No, we all know When you take a pure young heart and you inflame it, that ain't ever going back. And the other thing interesting about this one Seattle Children's Hospital, there were 35 myopericarditis diagnoses after dose two alone in this age group, 12 to 17, in the period of, it looks like about nine months. In one hospital. And again, this is right away. I could tell you the ones coming in with chest pain six months later, none of that will ever, ever be traced back. Two months later, never be traced back. These are only the ones that get it right away. But what I'm telling you is if you look at the Vera's reporting from the last few months, it's obvious that it's a cumulative effect. The microclotting probably has something to do with it. But here's where we are. People need help, and there is no effort to research, diagnose, help these people. Literally, the entire Western world, except for Africa, was, uh, was totally poisoned with this. Totally poisoned with this. One other interesting point I want to make before we sew up today, and we'll have special guests on later this week. Um, we're going to cover an array of, of issues on this. We'll have some doctors on, um, again, to discuss this various parts of treatment and the vaccine injury. Um, we might even do a special so- show on 5G and graphene in the shots and how the two connect. Very, very scary stuff. But Jessica Rose, right, she's a microbiologist, immunologist, so she has a great substack. And she made an important point. Everyone keeps bellyaching over the denominator. Well, you can't say there's been a 10,000% increase in VAR's reporting because we've never had this many shots. We have so many shots being given. Five, what is it? 550 million or something COVID doses given in the United States. It's true. That is a lot. But they make it seem like there's no other vaccines. Right? That would be a valid point if every year we give out, I'm just making it up, 100,000 or 500,000 total vaccines of all kinds to people. And this year, because of COVID, we had 550 million. So then you're like, well, okay, it's going to grow exponentially. But folks, she just took, she just said, let's just take the flu shot alone. The flu shot alone. Remember, every kid, they shove on the MMR and the DTAP and the, the, the rotavirus. I mean, a dozen things on the childhood schedule, not to mention the military and older people and pneumonia shots and shingle shots. It's everywhere. And I'm not saying there's nothing to see with the other ones. I think most of those are more subtle and longer term. But the reality is there's is not picking them up. Just... The flu shot alone is 193.8 million doses. Okay? Now, the 558 million doses of COVID was over the course of 462 days. So flu season is 365 days. So I think it would be fair to assume that if 193.8 million doses of flu vaccine were doled out in 365 days, then 245 million doses would be doled out in 462 days. Okay. So she says we have 2.3 times more doses of COVID. 2.3. Okay. It's not 10,000 times. It's just 2.3 more than, um, than we're doled out for the flu. Okay. So it would make sense then that the rate of reporting in VAERS should be about 2.3 times more. But again, folks, it's not that we had 2.3 times as many shots. We had 2.3 times as many as the baseline of flu. That's one shot. It's probably the most common. But you add on the other ones, we don't have good data on it, but it's it's safe to say that I mean there's it's going to rival those numbers. So the point is, you shouldn't more if it's just as safe as the other shots, you shouldn't more than double it. Okay? You shouldn't more than double it. She notes that as of today, according to, to Wonder CDC system, there are sixteen hundred ninety-six different types of adverse events and forty-five thousand or so total adverse events reported to theirs in the context of the fourteen variations of flu vaccines. Also, according to Wonder, there are 10,526 different types of adverse events and 5.3 million total adverse events reported to theirs in the context of the three variations of COVID 19 products. So we have twice as many COVID shots than flu shots. We have 6.2 times as many types of adverse events types reported in the context of COVID and 117.6 times as many reports of adverse events in the context of COVID shots. So even though we omitted all other vaccines, she says there are 82 others, we still have no comparison here with regard to the number of shots in our relationship, the number of adverse events occurring and being reported. One more thing she notes, during the time VARES received 13,434 preliminary reports of death among people who received COVID-19 vaccine. So the CDC, that means they're well aware that VAERS suffers from underreporting. So why are they not considering the underreporting factor, URF? And what is the URF for death? Or for all types of adverse events? Thrombosis, guillain myocarditis, right? Let's assume that the URF is lower than the lowest estimate of the URF that's been done to date. It was calculated from Pfizer's Severe Adverse Events data calculated and, app- and applies to severe adverse events. Let's go with 30. Nice round number. Let's also use their quoted estimate of 13,434 COVID-19 product associated deaths and VAERS. This would mean that 403,000 people died if we use an URF of 30. That means that their statistic becomes 0.07%. That means 7 out of 10,000 individuals who get injected die. And that's just short-term. If we use the actual number of deaths reported to theirs, which is 29,481, that would give us 884,000 vaccine deaths. Now, I personally don't think it's that high. I think it's closer to the 300,000. um, because I don't think the 29,000 is underreported by a factor of 30. It's probably you know more like a factor of, of 10, maybe a little bit more. Um, but that's short term. Long term is, is crazy. And then, you know, all the injuries eventually do turn into some of them do turn into deaths because they're chronic illnesses, they take years off of life. But this all gets back to the courts. We have nowhere to turn. So we have to stop focusing on the same idolatry, the same distractions, the same stupidity with judicial nominees. We need to take our own destiny in our own hands. We need to find a place, set up shop, flood it locally, and make it. This is our constitutional sanctuary. So that is about... for today. We'll get into a little bit more of the Ukraine stuff. It's wearing off, as you can tell. People don't even care anymore, so that means that they're going to have to rejuvenate it with something else. We'll talk about some of the economic fallout, more on vaccine injury, more on treatment, the war on treatment, what's going on in legislatures, and many, many more good pieces of information you will not hear elsewhere. That's why I need you to be an ambassador for CR Podcast. Uh, Send the show everywhere. Give us a five-star rating with a comment on iTunes. Until tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.